quite fast for someone that feels hungover. Hey, I'm Matt Mulholland. This is Remington Huggins. Hey, everybody. This is the Listen to This Bull Show, the show where you get to ask us questions live and we'll answer it. That's and exactly right. Usually have some odd questions and we're not opposed to answering the odd questions <laughs> at all. So, but if you ask me how long it took me to grow the beard, I'm not going to answer it. I'm tired that's, of that one. That's it's a stupid question. That's no one just goes from nothing to this. It took a period of time. You can ask Taylor how long it took him to do something. So we've got Taylor Bezik in the wings, and he is the vice president of sales for C3 Group, someone who really knows what he's talking about. Um, I've been on several losses with him, really interesting ones that we were trying to figure out. There might be some way of providing coverage and going back and forth. This dude, He knows his shit. He knows his shit. I like him for it. So I'm going to bring him on, and we are going to talk about uh, frivolous claims or filing claims without knowing if there's full coverage. And this is really a conversation for public adjusters and contractors. Uh, so here we go. I'm going to have to add in attorneys. And attorneys. I'm just going to add that in there. Hey, Taylor. Taylor, what's going on, buddy? Howdy, guys. How you doing? Doing, doing good, good, man. You, you live in Colorado, don't you? I do. I'm in Denver. Howdy a term they use in Colorado? What's that? Is howdy a term they use in Colorado? Maybe I've been in Texas too much. This you time. might have been. <laughs> yeah. Do you happen to have a giant belt buckle on right this second? You know, well, I'm I'm in my uh, work from home casual civvy, so no belt buckle. That's, that's only for going out. There you go. It's been going to the line dance. Last time I saw you, uh, you actually did a presentation in uh, Dallas. It was right out. Uh, that was a C3 event with some contractors. Uh, you did a great job. I know you know what you're talking about, man. That's why you're on the show. And you've got your hockey face on. Yeah. <laughs> is that what you were talking about, about asking him? Is it the uh, mustache? That, that's work product right there. Yeah. Yeah. How long did it take you to grow that? Did you go from nothing to that? No. So how you grow a mustache is you grow a beard much like yours, Matt, and then you just cut the bottom off. Yeah, Growing a mustache works. solo is a very uh, unpopular endeavor. So I don't advise it. Unless you're in the 70s. If you live in the 70s, I think it's okay. Right. Or if you're Hitler. <laughs> uh, we shouldn't laugh when you and Hitler in the same sentence. but No, Hitler's funny. It's It's been long enough. It's okay. <laughs> what did Dale, uh, Dale say? It's the mullet? It may be the mullet, the awesome mullet talking. You do have a mullet, don't you? I've heard about this. Some say yes, it's a mullet. It might be a contemporary mullet. What does the wife say? That because that's really what matters. That's the determining well, factor. You know, I'm I'm from Minnesota, and I've taken her back enough where I've convinced her it's just hockey hair and not a mullet. So, but I've okay. got family. I've got family in South Carolina who swear it's a mullet. So. Depends on what part of the country you're in. Yeah, well, I, I'm voting mullet. I guess when you go above the Mason-Dixon line, it turns into hockey hair. I think that's where the cutoff is right there. So, I, I, hey, I think it looks good. I think you're sporting it well, man. That's high praise. <laughs> All right, so we brought you on to talk about the issues in filing claims, and you don't know if there's enough coverage or you're making assumptions of coverage. 
from what I understand, you've been talking about this all over the place. Yeah, kind of uh, got thrown into that after, you know, conversations we've had and, and, and just trends we've been seeing in the industry, specifically in Texas. I mean, as everyone knows this year, you know, Texas has had a pretty consistent string of significant hailstorms um, pretty much all over the state. And while that's, you know, a good thing for our industry from, you know, contractors all the way up to attorneys, uh, what we've been seeing is a lot of policies with really prohibitive provisions and language that have serious implications and considerations for the decision to file a claim and, you know, what an insured and then ultimately a contractor, public adjuster attorney's best day is with regard to an outcome as, as far as indemnification from a carrier. So it kind of, you know, piqued my interest of, you know, all of us are guilty of this. I mean, pervasively throughout the industry, we, we tend to overlook bad facts in light of good ones, uh, especially when you have, you know, a, a wind, wind event or hailstorm that causes significant damage. There's, there's a whole other sure. side of it, which is the, the primary governing document that gets the insured and subsequently all of us paid, and that's the policy. And, you know, our time is, is our most valuable resource. And, and if you're investing time and effort into an endeavor in the form of a claim that's ultimately not going to bear fruit for the insured and the contractor and, you know, the insured's representatives, it, you know, it might be better to look for other options for financing or B, move on to the next one and spend your time more efficiently finding a, a good claim to work that, you know, is going to benefit you in the long run. So if we're treating a claim like a woman, follow me. I'm just, I'm ready for this yeah. right here. I'm, I'm getting pumped. <laughs> We're going to go down this rabbit hole and, and you're overlooking some of her faults and blemishes and maybe the fact that she annoys the shit out of you because she's got a nice butt, right? Good facts versus bad facts. Mm -hmm. um, at some point, her butt will become less important and the crap and bullshit coming out of her mouth will drive you so insane that you'll either want to walk away from it at that point, but feel comfortable and stuck in that relationship. Maybe you put a ring on it and you shouldn't have because you enjoyed the extramarital benefits. I don't know. Is it extramarital? No, that's in the possible. Once you, once you put a I ring it on it, it's, it's, it you're, it's marital. Yeah, marital benefits. <laughs> They're not extra. Yeah, you're still You might go seek extramarital benefits because you're just so fed up. So you need to know what's going to come out of her mouth before you really start looking at her ass. Yeah, I don't know if I want to be associated so much with that metaphor, but uh, it's kind of, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, a nice butt isn't going to fix a bad attitude, I guess, if, if that's what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So For a little while. Yeah, maybe. yeah, a little while. So you got good facts, you got bad facts. In, in an insurance claim, sometimes having both isn't terrible. There's always going to be some bad facts. Definitely, when they get to Remington, there's always at least something. It's never a perfect case. Never. Never, never is. Exactly. So how do you know when there's too many bad facts versus um, enough good ones to overcome? I think it's, you know, looking at, you know, looking at the whole situation, not just, you know, so you you have an in with the insured or the, the main representative for a property. And let's say, you know, for hypothetical reasons, it's, it's a hailstorm. That's what we handle with a lot, deal with a lot, excuse me. And you get up, you walk the building, and there is, you know, clearly evidence of significant hail damage, enough to where you'd be like, yes, 
this needs to be fixed. It needs to be I got I gotta pause you for a second because I, I made a stupid metaphor and now my wife is commenting, This isn't good. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I sorry babe. I love you. <laughs> There's nothing extramarital going on. All right. That's it. Keep going. <laughs> so, you know, well, it's really, you have two sides of it. You have the, the damage exhibited and what needs to be done to repair, fix, rehab the property to pre-loss condition. And then there's the other side of it, which is the policy and, you know, what it's going to take to get an insurance carrier to indemnify the insured to the extent where they can do the work that is proposed to be done to, to remedy the damage. And then there's also the, the time consideration. How much time is it going to take to go down that road and get that money from the carrier? Um, so I think that the, the damage is one thing. I mean, that's self-evident. Typically there might be some more investigation that goes into it. There might be bad facts with regard to, you know, subsequent loss or efficient proximate cause. Like how much of this is deferred maintenance, wear and tear versus the peril claimed against. But if you can prove that, I, I feel like that's kind of the easy part where, you know, taking a look and game planning out what the practical application of the policy is within the context of the damage is something that gets severely overlooked because of the fact that, oh, there's great damage. You had a hailstorm, you've got a loss, it's a claim. File a claim, you owe your deductible, we'll take care of the rest, and then we'll move on to the next one. But you forgot to find out whether or not there was a previous claim with the same homeowner and they had a hail claim that was paid out two years prior and that's a fact that was completely ignored because you got so excited about the, uh, you know, her ass. I mean, I mean, the hail damage. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> or if there was a claim uh, before the purchase of the property. There's I mean, that. I, I run into that a good bit, you know, especially in Florida. But there's all these different variables that come into play. So if you're in the audience and you have an example of a time when you forgot something, missed something, or or ignored some bad facts and took on some good ones. Maybe you had great success, maybe you didn't, but give us some examples in the comments. I'd really like to have some examples to go through with Taylor so everybody can learn from each other here. That's our goal, not to talk about women. <laughs> I would never do that, Ashley. We're going to take that analogy and make it into like a car, like a Corvette. Like it's beautiful on the outside, but it might not That's be good. as comfortable on the inside, right, you know? Yeah. And do you really need a spoiler? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's up for debate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have like a formula that you that's use cool. Taylor or that uh, like the main elements for when you actually say, you know what? I, I want this homeowner or commercial building owner to be my client. I want to sign them up. I want to represent them and advocate for them against the insurance company. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, for, it's basically what we do to qualify a claim and it's, you know, you look at obviously the damage exhibited, um, the weather data, and then the policy and the policy again is, is always the most important part of it. And kind of the whole situation that uh, spurred this conversation internally at C3 was that we were looking at claims in Texas and we had one specifically in San Antonio, it was an apartment complex and it had good damage, um, was within the, the swath from the most recent storm. We sent someone out to take a look at it. It looked good. Um, and then we did a review of the policy and found some you know, pretty troubling things in there, uh, one of which was that it had a 5% wind and hail deductible right off the bat. Um, and that's, that's based off of the total insured value of the property, not 5% of the claim, total insured wow. value. So there was a significant number. Second, 
they had an ACV endorsement on roofs over 15 years old. And these were asphalt shingles that were between, I think the, the most recently installed one was around 20 years. So at the end of the day, between the deductible and this ACV endorsement, there was effectively no coverage for wind and hail because these are asphalt shingles and at, you know, 20 years old, they're 50% through their serviceable life. Well, you know, worst case scenario or best case scenario, you're getting 50 cents on the dollar for that material. Now there's some wiggle room there with labor and then what the actual definition of roof surface is. But the definition of ACV is in that state. Some states have fair market value set as their actual cash value definition. Correct. But that anyway. coupled with, that coupled with the, the high deductible, the 5% wind and hail deductible, That's when, we crazy. Gamed it out, when we gamed it out and said, all right, how much do we think this roof is actually worth? You know, you're responsible for your deductible and this uh, depreciation. There's a very slim to no margin of money left over there that's going to come from the insurance carrier. And you basically have to do all the work before you can even get that. So we basically advise this insured that, hey, you know, unfortunately, it, it might not even be in your best interest to file a claim because the time that the time that you're going to spend trying to pursue this small amount of money relative to what it's going to take to do the work with the carrier, you could probably just get it done, which you're going to have to do anyhow. So <clears throat> that was kind yeah. of the thing that, you know, perked my ears up when thinking about specifically you know, restoration contractors and their salespeople. It's like, if you ask just a couple more questions or, you know, have a sit down with the insured and, and pry a little bit or have them, you know, ask their agent or their broker about what these coverages mean, you're going to save yourself a lot of time and headache down the road. And, you know, you're going to free yourself up to go out and sign potentially more better claims. Well, let me, if, if they do end up filing a claim with that particular set of facts, let's say it's, it's a sales guy for a roofing company and they've got a RPS schedule or it turns out that they have an ACV only on roofs and the insurer doesn't know it. And it's not written in the deck page sometimes, especially the ones where it triggers into ACV at a certain age. How would they know other than calling an agent or seeing the entire policy. And if they do, what is the consequence to the policyholder? What is the consequence to the policyholder with regard to? If you file that claim anyway, and they end up with no money. I, I mean, I think the, the biggest detriment to them is, is wasted time, you know, and that's, I mean, that's the most of it, unless, unless there's no damage. I mean, if the damage is there, <clears throat> and it's evident and it's from a covered peril, there's no sure. harm in filing the claim other than, you know, you're not going to get paid and it's going to take you however, however long the carrier decides to make that determination before you make a decision on what, whether to do the repairs. There is the possible uh, issue of having them come out, look at the condition of the property, deny the claim and then non-renew your insurance because they're not going to pay the claim and now you have a damaged asset. Uh, that's happened to me quite a bit. Yes. So that's, that's one of the things that, you know, they're going to put eyes on it, note that it's damaged, say, I'm sorry, there's effectively no coverage here. They might even write you a full estimate for what needs to be done and say there's, you know, $100,000 of damage, but, you know, your, your deductible is so much and your depreciation is so much that we're paying you little to nothing. And now there's a previous claim on it. So even if you go and get, yeah. you know, new insurance, there's yeah. this $100,000 estimate that effectively paid zero out there hanging over your head. 
That, that's what I, I was I was going to say what Taylor said because yeah. you know if you go for uh, some other carrier to ensure that risk, uh, underwriting is typically have you filed a claim in the last three years? You know that that goes into the premium. That's a I, that, that's I've a been asked five premium. years when, when buying a house recently. That's they were asking me for a five year really? history. Wow, um, and even a tree loss that was caused by wind. Uh, caused my rates to be increased. It was technically an act of God occurrence kind of a thing. And, and my, my rates were higher because of that loss. Hmm. Although they didn't care about a specific wind loss, the fact that there was a tree involved changed that for some reason. Yeah. Um, but quantity of claims on your record. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. 100%. So in Georgia, a lot of people, I got a lot of calls from contractors that made this mistake and now they're stuck and they want to know if there's anything a public adjuster can do about it. It's not a goddamn thing we can do about it. But now the homeowner's in a pickle and they're getting letters. And the letter says that they have to make repairs by X date or they're going to be dropped, not just non-renewed. Because now they know that their, their damage is severe and that they are in a state of, of not being insurable any longer. So if they did assess it, and make a uh, recommendation or, or determine that the roof needs to be replaced, now the policyholder might be stuck or forced to make those repairs just to be able to keep their coverage. If they go to a different coverage, they might not get any. They might be stuck in one of those uh, uh, state policies, like a, a state fair plan of some kind. That mm-hmm. usually is only ACV or meant for really old houses. It's, it's an ugly situation. Mm-hmm. So unless you're an evil corporation, and your entire plan is to get someone on the hook that they have to replace their roof by a certain date, and you happen to offer a really good financing option that you didn't tell them about up front, then maybe that's a good business model for you. Don't you love it when the insurance company says that there's no damage on the roof, and then six months later, that policyholder gets a letter saying that we can't insure your risk anymore because of the condition of your roof? I just, you know, happy little time. All right, we've got a few questions on here. Frank says, asking the client if there's ever a lapse in coverage. If you don't know who Frank is, he's the one of the owners at Coastal Claims down in New Smyrna Beach, Florida. A very, very knowledgeable guy. He's also well, one of the owners of the National Claims Institute. Yep, yeah, that is true as well. And asking yeah. asking the client if there was ever lapse in coverage. Oh, that's that, mm-hmm. that's that's a great question. It really is. So and if they had a lapse in coverage in the past, would that affect it if they don't have, if they currently have coverage during the storm? Now, if that lapse in coverage occurred during the storm, there, there'd be a significant issue. Or if it's now a mortgage place policy. Has C3, do you happen to know, has C3 ever been hired by a mortgage company on a mortgage place policy? We have not. Um, that's definitely something we, we flirted with the idea of, uh, especially in instances where, you know, these mortgage companies have the the majority equity in a property. You think they would have an interest in making sure that, you know, it was handled correctly. But no, I almost never, never broached that, that, uh, that side of things. I had a, uh, I, I don't know if they were an adjuster, but someone from a mortgage company called me after Hurricane Michael in Albany, Georgia. And because I had already been out to the property, that they had a mortgage place policy on. And they were asking me questions about what I found out there. And I told them all the damages that I found. And I told them exactly what needed to be done at the adjustment. And I told them what the pitfalls were going to be because of who the carrier was. 
And I said that they should hire me. And they didn't. And then the day of the adjustment, I happened to be in the same neighborhood. I didn't know. And I'm watching them out there on this roof. And this dude in a business suit is up on the roof with the guy. So he must have been the mortgage guy. And you can see him fighting tooth and nail with the adjuster. <laughs> and, you know, I, I felt I felt pretty good about that. <laughs> I wonder how that turned out for him. Yeah, this yeah. is it's funny it that like uh, Frank well. said that literally in the last week I had somebody uh, come to the office in which it was a complete fire loss and their policy lapsed two days. And within that two days, they had a complete fire loss. Are you serious? That's oh. serious, man. That is a tough pill to swallow for that homeowner. Crazy. It's a shame there isn't an automatic placement of the Georgia or the state's fair plan in those situations to at least cover the named perils. Yeah. And, and what I'm doing is I'm, I'm doing a deep dive into some research to see if there's anything I can do because I feel for them. That sucks. No, no what if the cause of loss was determined to be a faulty circuit that was installed a week before? Mm. Then the date of loss would technically be that week before, wouldn't it? Uh, no, the date of loss would be the fire, not the fault. That's the ensuing one. Hey, we get we can try to argue that, but common sense tells me. So otherwise. there's there's different. Hey, forms. I might I might just do that just to have fun and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we got a, we got an example here. Dale Shelton, isn't this one of your attorneys, right? Yeah, he's one of my uh, partners down in Florida. Uh, uh, Property claims attorneys, Dale Shelton is. Seven figure commercial loss via hurricane wind. Poor record keeping on insurance part meant. Full disclosure of prior repairs didn't come to light until discovery. Now stuck with very bad facts. Poor record keeping. So sometimes the bad facts are unintentional. What do you do about that? I, you, I mean, we always ask for maintenance history, prior claims, any, any piece of information that would give us insight into how the property got into the condition it was prior to the event happening and what could have possibly contributed to the condition of the property outside of what we believe to be the most efficient proximate cause, which is going to be the peril claimed against. Um, but it's tough because you run into insureds who are, you know, maybe a little bit shrewd that are looking to take advantage of a situation to overcome deficiencies that they've had in maintaining their property. You haven't um, been lied to by a policyholder before, have you, Taylor? I mean, I would say maybe omitted to. That's what this sounds like it is. But, you know, we've definitely had instances where we're, you know, you know, we've had claims that have gone to litigation and through the process of discovery, you get that phone call from the attorney being like, hey, did you know about this? And it's a serious, serious detriment to our position and it's frustrating but really all you can do is do your diligence and try to you know qualify things as best you can um those are those are those instances are difficult to to overcome and you know with regard to record keeping one of the biggest issues we see is with property management companies and their turnover you know you'll have an hoa with a property manager they'll switch over and all of the records from the previous property manager go out the window. No one can find them. That person's unreachable. You know, maybe they never kept them, but it's uh, it's difficult. Uh, and all you can really do is, you know, gather all the information possible in order to make a good judgment call on the front end. So a follow-up to that from Dale, he says, the dollar says that a claim 
likely caused the lack of digging on the front end. The new property manager, just like you were saying, just wasn't aware at the time of signing up. And a lot of times that is the case. Mm-hmm. New HOA president comes in and there's there's not good records. They don't know what's happened before. Maybe they just moved into the neighborhood. Right. Or if you're in a retirement community, there's a lot of turnover on those boards. A ton. All the time. Every year. Mm-hmm. I- I mean, I've had HOAs where every single year, all five uh, officers are replaced. And it's like just teaching somebody brand new where we're at, what we're doing. So uh, no, that happens all the time. Yeah, I'm happy yeah. one right now, just like that. And I think it's I think it's really important to make it clear that, you know, this isn't an easy process. I mean, getting, you know, insurance companies aren't just laying down to give you seven figures of indemnification for a given loss. And they're going to try to find every possible way to sow doubt into your narrative as Loctite as it is and framing that on the front end to ensure to be like, the reason I need this information is because without it, there's a gap in my narrative. It's not, you know, chronologically perfect. There's, there's an issue here. There's an unanswered question that they are going to hone right in on and use as a, as a reason to deny partially deny or fully deny this claim. So, you know, making it clear to your insureds or your clients that, yeah, this is a long process potentially. This is going to be a very tedious process, and it's not going to be, hey, we had this event, give us, you know, the money my contractor says we need to do the work. If it was, <laughs> we wouldn't have jobs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I say that often to public adjusters that really get down in the dumps and they start bitching and moaning about how the carriers are treating them improperly. And I say, listen, man, I know this sucks, but. If it wasn't like this, you wouldn't have a job. Yep. Sure is. Mr. Barons. So how do you deal with claims in states where hail storms and multiple losses are such a huge problem? What steps should a contractor take to make sure the damage they are seeing isn't from five years ago? I think it seems self-explanatory, but I'll let you take it too. Uh, You know, on top of getting good weather data, um, it goes back to the asking about prior claims but I think the weather data is, is, is the most important thing to lean on, meteorological data. Um, yeah. And and on-site, you know, the way that the damage manifests it's on, itself on-site. I mean, if you're getting out there relatively soon, after a hailstorm specifically, I mean, wind, I think, is pretty self-evident, um, especially if it was, you know, catastrophic. But uh, if you're out there, you know, fairly soon after a loss, you should be able to discriminate or to d- differentiate between new and old damage. And if that is corroborated by good meteorological data, <coughs> hail trace, uh, <coughs> that's that's a good sign for, you know, the damage and the weather data on a claim. I mean, that's true. No weather data is perfect, though. Um, so you know, it, one of the things that we've taught in our classes is you're looking for evidence outside of the damage that you're claiming. You want to find some kind of evidence because the storm data is not going to be perfect. It might and show that it's is too small, but if you've got spatter, then you know that it's recent. If you've got collateral damage, then you can prove that it was hail that caused damage. Whether or not it's old or new, sometimes you can tell from the actual damage on whatever material it is. Wind, I think, is actually a little bit harder there because there's so many wind events, and a material can get worn out by multiple smaller wind events to where a light wind or a, a less severe wind than would normally take would be able to damage it. Now you don't really have storm data because it was less than 58 miles per hour. And most of the storm data 
tracks 58 or 60 miles per hour and greater. And so do you really have any storm data to go with it? You, you really have to look for the evidence. So uh, from a contractor Absolutely. perspective, it, honestly, I think all that really comes down to proper training. They really need to know what it is they're looking at so that they can puzzle it out on site. If they can, if they know how to think about what they're looking at, then they have a better chance of being able to figure that out. And there's, there's a policy consideration there too, because again, in Texas, you know, we're seeing policies that have uh, pre-existing damage endorsements, which basically give the carrier the latitude to come in and whether or not they knew about said damage, unilaterally determine that damage is pre-existing in order to deny new damage. So to come in after a loss, say, oh, well, we didn't see this before, but this appears to be old damage. And because of this old damage, the roof is totaled, but that nullifies the new damage. Sorry, there's no coverage. I mean, that's the intent of an endorsement like that. Um, so let me ask you this then, because storm data would solve that issue. Absolutely. But if you don't have good storm data, even if there was a storm and the storm data just doesn't support it, you know that there was a storm, but you have no video from the homeowner or anything like that. Is it worth taking on? That's a good question. Um, I think it. I think it really depends on, you know, what you're seeing on site, and if there is any information that you have at your disposal to be able to corroborate that storm. <clears throat> I mean, is there news coverage of it? Is there? You get you tell me there's no, no photos, no nothing. I I would be very hesitant to take that on unless I had concrete evidence. Um, to support that that storm happened when the insured was alleging it happened or trying to find a recent storm day, especially if you're in an, if you're in a situation where there is weather data that's showing on a previous storm date that might be, you know, outside the policy period or outside the statute of limitations. I, I think it'd be really difficult to take that on without having some sort of concrete information to support when that storm happened. And, and here's, here's something that I think needs to be taken into consideration is you as a public adjuster literally, but not officially depose that policyholder, ask them those tough questions. When did you figure out that there was actual damage to your storm? I mean, to your roof or, or whatever it might be. And, and then go with your gut read. If, if you think that this person is actually telling the truth and it's credible, you know, that to me in front of a jury um, holds, holds as much weight as some um, some type of weather data, because it does. You know, people relate to people, not necessarily the scientific weather data. So, if 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 they truly are like, look, I can testify, I can I can put down in an EUO or a recorded statement that this portion of my roof was not damaged prior to this storm, but after the storm occurred, that's when I noticed this damage. You know, although the weather data might not be there, it might be something to think about taking on. Would you record them? Was that? Would you record that? You know, that's completely your call. I think that's just like a technical, stylistic type thing. But, you know, just go with, do you trust this policyholder? And do you think that they're telling the truth about this loss? Most good public adjusters carrying around a really good flashlight, you know, for their inspections. What if they took out the flashlight? Put it on the curve for those set of questions. Do you think that we'll get better answers out of them if you do that? I think they would look for another PA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they might. Well, 
But uh, seriously, because it does, it, it matters. In my opinion, it does, you know, having that conversation. And, you know, what about the next door neighbor or the, the next commercial property owner? You know, did they visualize the storm? You know, things like that. Because as we've seen, you know, Derek Klein from like uh, Hail Trace and stuff, you know, weather data isn't 100% all the time. Accurate. No, he was even saying his data is right. not 100% accurate right. ever. And a lot of times these insurance carriers weather data, they, they, they take a snapshot of what's going on miles above the actual property itself. Isn't that true? Yeah, remember when we had uh, Matt Phelps on? I did. And he was telling us that uh, hail is going to fall from wherever it's observed in the weather data. And between where it falls, where it's observed, and when it hits the ground, it's not going to go straight down. Yeah. There's going to be wind affecting it. It's going to move. So the the data, the map might show where it was observed at altitude, but right. it could fall six miles away from that spot. So having good storm data is very useful to Absolutely. prove your point on a claim, but it isn't – you can't – Does it it's going to be hard. Absolutely. It's going to be hard to win a claim without it. Yeah. And that's part Absolutely. of the problem. So this is Absolutely. what we're talking about. How do you juggle a bad claim fact? And the bad fact might be that the storm data doesn't support it, even though the storm data is wrong. Yeah. All right. Six months. <laughs> laugh out loud. There should be a way to laugh that automatically makes you laugh out loud. Maybe you stick your tongue out while you laugh. So I don't have to say LOL. Just do the emoji now. You're good. I can't do the emoji. No, the emoji okay. doesn't have a beard. Okay. We have three right now. The insured got letters within two weeks of the adjuster's inspection telling them they didn't have enough damage for the storm. But the letter said, fix your stuff or lose cover. That's happened to me, too. That's crazy. And meanwhile, there's probably an underwriting file from when the policy got renewed saying the place is in perfect condition. Fine. Prime candidate for coverage. So if, if you're a contractor going into situations like this, it's a, probably a, a little bit harder, but you, there are ways to determine if there's some pre-existing damage. You can you download the desktop version of Google Earth, Google Earth Pro. Mm -hmm. You can go back in satellite images and see if the damage, especially if it's like missing shingles or something obvious from the sky, see if it was there a year prior. Uh, and there's, there's this other company Frank keeps telling me about, and I can never remember the name of it. Maybe he's still watching. He'll post it on here for me. But another company you can you can go and, and purchase um, previous images from that are a little bit closer and a lot a lot a lot easier to use. Hopefully he posts on here. He's probably not watching anymore. That ever happened to you though? That's that's really quick. Two weeks. Mm -hmm. All right. This is a long one. I'm Jen. I went out to a residential claim. Should I have a? Should I do a female voice? Yeah, we do. We need I that. went out to a residential claim. There was so much damage to the home, and it was just a no-brainer. I'm not doing that anymore. I, I'm already annoyed with myself. That was terrible. This was a fire. I spent money on an IH, an industrial hygienist, and the insured allowed me to keep working the process. The insurance company let me file, uh, file the claim. I assumed... Per the deck page that they were good to go. So you only looked at the deck page. The insured had already done the claim a year prior, didn't know. They never did the repairs. We just wanted more money as they told me it wasn't enough in the beginning. I could have fought the older claim. 
that's happened to me before so many times. People think that if they just don't tell you about it, that maybe the insurance company won't realize there was a prior claim. Also, when they call the insurance company, the insurance company sometimes files a new claim for them when they really shouldn't have. It should have been on the old claim anyway. And sometimes the insurance company puts them into a two-claim scenario. For sure. Taylor, I'm sure you do this too. But as a public adjuster reviewing a claim history, reviewing a file, trying to determine if you should reopen the old claim versus file a new one, sometimes it's a little bit of a daunting decision. Absolutely. And I mean, again, it comes down to, you know, asking those extra questions and just impressing on the insured why it's important to have a complete picture and, you know, to understand that, you know, we need to know because what, if you think you're, you know, trying to pull one over on your insurance carrier, you're trying to, you know, set us on the right path. If we don't have full optics of what's going on or what's been done to date, it can, you know, kind of nullify any efforts that we make or cause redundant efforts when, you know, it's a moot point. So it's just really impressing that on them and kind of explaining, you know, the process and getting them to understand the process of filing a claim and what all of the moving parts and variables are involved. And I think when they have that context, they understand that, you know, it's better to share everything on the front end. Well, it sounds like you're, an attorney at times, the the way that we're trying to advise these. So can a contractor advise in this way? Is this crossing the line? Impressing the the point that they need all the information. I'll say this. uh, What Taylor said in advising their client as a licensed public adjuster in that particular state and, 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 how the insurance carrier is going to apply the policy to this loss and having multiple losses. I don't think that's outside the scope of Taylor's work at all. Not as a PA. Uh, you know, yeah. as a contractor, you know, again, there's always the gray area. You know, I have, I have certain rules with it. But saying, I mean, asking a, a homeowner if that's potentially your client, if they've ever filed a claim on their roof before, I don't think that's outside of their bounds either. Right. Because you can ask that, questions before giving advice. I guess the act of giving the advice might be the point where there, you're crossing the line. But there you go. That's the way to dissect that. Well, sure. in Remington, this, this is a question that I have for you and let me know. But is, is it outside of a contractor's latitude to look at and understand what the practical implications are of a policy and say a hail claim? So say an insured hasn't filed a claim at all. And they ask the contractor to go out and take a, their look, take a look at their roof after a hailstorm. Contractor comes down and says, yeah, there's quite a bit of damage. The roof is going to need to be replaced. And the insured comes back and says, well, I'm, I'm probably going to file a claim. I'd like you to do the work and maybe meet my adjuster. Or is the contractor overstepping their bounds by saying, hey, maybe you should take a look or we should take a look at your policy to make sure that there's adequate coverage to, to get you indemnified for your roof from your insurance carrier? Yeah. Great question. And I don't care what attorney you ask. This is always a gray area when you're talking about a contractor, what they can and what they can't do. If you ask 10 attorneys, you might get 10 different answers. But you as a contractor can recommend to a homeowner, hey, look, here's the damage. Here are the pictures. You should probably file an insurance claim. You you can do that. You can recommend that they file an insurance claim. 
I, as a contractor, if I was in their shoes, would avoid reading the actual policy language. But to me, there's a difference between looking at a deck page and, and reading the multi-line portion of the policy. I think there's that, I think that is separated uh, because you know, that, that homeowner needs to know and the contractor, is it ACV policy? Is it RCV policy for windstorm? Things like that, um, that I personally don't have a problem with. I mean, literally looking and seeing policy limits and, and, and making sure that the homeowner sees that they have coverage for what they're about to file a claim for, you know, that's different than saying, than going through the multi-line policy. Would you agree, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. I've, yeah. I've harped on this many times and I have had attorneys disagree with me on this. Uh, luckily you agree with me whenever I push harder enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got off track. Uh, no, they, it's, it's plain language. The deck page is just a snapshot of coverage limits and what forms they are. That's the point of the deck page. That's why you can get a deck page before you purchase a policy, but you can't get the full policy. Right. Everybody, yeah. Agents have access to this thing. You're, you're expected to, sh to hand your deck page over to certain individuals for certain things so that they can verify coverages. It's a verification. It isn't. It is a part of the policy, but it isn't the policy. It is. Different. Well, and it, it ties into the whole, you know, the whole idea of not telling them to file a frivolous claim or a claim that they may not have coverage for. And if you're the one contractor that shows up out of 20 after a hailstorm says, Hey, you know, we've been seeing these endorsements and this stuff creep up before I tell you whether or not I think you should file a claim. Let's take a look at your policy and make sure on your best day, if all of the other stars align, is the money there in the contract that you bought from your insurance company? Because if it's not, this might not be for me, or we might have to look into doing some other sort of financing for you to get this done. And it's going to be a lot more efficient and you won't have a claim against you and you won't have your insurance company coming out and looking for possible ways to non-renew you or, you know, terminate your coverage uh, at, at policy. It's, you I know, there's a ton of states that require um, proof that the deductible was paid. Absolutely. A, a contractor should be allowed to verify that the deductible amount is the amount that the insurance set and that well, they can only do point. that by looking yeah, at it. That's a great point. How often does a contractor come out and, you know, they say, oh, yeah, you know, you filed a claim. It's getting approved. All you owe is your deductible. And the insurer goes, perfect. My deductible is $1,000. Well, and it's way more. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a wind and hail deductible endorsement that pushes it up to one, two, five percent. And then mm -hmm. when, the, when the contractor is going to collect, you know, they're, you know, significantly deficient on their full billing because they're chasing down a deductible that no one knew applied to that loss. Give some give some disclaimer language like Dale says. You may want to contact your insurance company and or license payer to determine whether you have coverage for this damage. Legit damage, no coverage is not frivolous. Let, let me ask. I, I want to ask you this way. May, maybe not uh, frivolous in the sense of an insurance company looking at it as frivolous, but as far as the stakeholders outside of the insurance company are concerned, in absolutely. you know getting a new roof at the cost of your deductible and doing it you know expeditiously, and the contractor getting paid from that side of the table, those two stakeholders, it, it would be frivolous. I understand what he's saying from, from a carrier yeah. standpoint, but. At the very least, I'm a contractor. I get the insured to give me a copy of their deck page. I look at it with the insured. I'm at least forcing the policyholder to read their own deck page. 
and verifying the deductibles on it. And if they have questions over terminology, layman's terminology is the same from one policy to the next that isn't something that's in the definition section of the policy, like what ACV, what RCV means. That's common knowledge. I'm getting them to read it. I'm not, I'm not even looking at it. I, have, well, I, I think there'd be a hard, it'd be a hard argument for an insurance company or, or an attorney to try to pin the act of uh, acting as a public adjuster without uh, without a license on a contract that's doing that. I, I think that there's something there. And, and if you're, hey, look, look, oh, there's some contractors, especially in Florida, and I know other states that are running assignment of benefits, AOVs. They have to know that information. They have to know how much that homeowner has to pay them per the deductible. They do, right? What, what, why are you laughing about that? This comment that Matt just said. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, these are things that AOB contractors have got to know. You know, they have to. They do. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I, think are, we, I think we're all on the same page when it comes to it. But oh, let's see if I can find where we were at. We have a bunch of comments for you, Taylor. Yeah. We have a bunch of questions. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Facebook user. I think it's a must to avoid accusations of fraud when submitting a proof of loss to make sure every possible fact is uncovered and we can make an adequate assessment of the damage. Put your client in the best possible place by uncovering all relevant info on the front end. Facebook user, you're a very smart person. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I, I bet you Remington can attest to this. I mean, a, a bad fact isn't going to torpedo a claim. And actually disclosure of bad facts up front it might help you in the long run to be like, I, I understand that this roof leaked before, but it leaked significantly more and it's documented after this date, the claim data loss. So It'll at least give you something to track down. You know, if, if, if you know it up front, then you know that you need additional evidence and you'll go and get that beforehand before filing the claim, hopefully, but mm-hmm. even after, before really submitting anything. Yeah. This is a good question. Incorporate our uh, property records permit search on the front end to help construct the timeline narrative. I haven't. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't, but we've definitely, we've definitely looked into uh, permits to see when, when roofs were put on last. Um, It's not always accurate, but if it is there, it's a definitely a helpful piece of information. Go to the tax assessor and and permit search and see when work was done, when permits were pulled. Let me tell you, the first time I did that wasn't that long ago. This is a failing of math. For whatever reason, the idea of going to a tax assessor's office for anything gives me the willies, man. It just it feels weird. It feels like you're – it feels – I don't know how it feels. It's it's just hmm. – it's, it's really important, especially with those ACV roof endorsements or the, the depreciation schedule endorsements because – yeah, when it was, and especially with HOAs where there's high turnover, you know, I, you know, I, I have a claim in Minnesota where, you know, the the board president swears the roofs were put on in you know 2015, and come to find out based on the uh, the permit search, it was 2012. It makes a difference um, because there was another storm within that window between 2012 and 2015. If it was 2015, we're free and clear. There's no dispute whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But that you know knowing your timeline and your chronology is really important in these losses because no, no building is perfect. No one, you know, keeps things pristine. So 
I, I can tell you this, when it gets in my hands as the attorney, defense counsel has pulled all permits. They, they do a permit search. They have a list of check of boxes to check off of, of what to do with each property every single time it goes across their desk. Searching for permits is 100% one of them. They want to know the age of the roof. And also, if the roof was already replaced and I have a public adjusting estimate for 100K and the permits pulled for 70, uh, they have issues with that. But I always, you know, I mean, hey, it's just an estimate, right? It's not an opinion. But still, I mean, they look at it. I'm, they will know. They will find out. That's true. Now. I kind of wish Cat was here. I'd ask him for the contractor perspective on this, but is it a smart move, even if it's not required in that municipality, to file a permit when you replace a roof? I don't know. Any contractors watching this that happen to know the answer to that, please post it in the comments. If if John Fielding, the, the neck tattoo man himself, is on here, I'd love to hear from him. Hey, he's smart. He yeah. knows his stuff, man. I'm he telling you. If you guys ever run across neck tat, make sure you have a conversation with him. We did a video after you left. Yeah, did you? Call it hats and tats. Hats. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, all right. Let's get over that. On-site collateral indicators trump weather data. I agree. I've seen three-inch hail markers where there was no hail in three-inch entirely outside of a hail swath. Fresh spatter, everything showing legitimate hail swarm, yet not inside a swath. That happens all the time. You've got to dig deep and invest, investigate the property entirely. And worst case scenario, you find yourself uh, an expert, like an engineer, to go out and make the determination for you so that it's a third party making that call. And then you have data. But if you don't have a hail swath that shows hail in that area and you don't have spatter, they're going to say it's older and you're going to have a hard time. It's the collateral indicators and the narrative of on-site damage is, is important. And it's not difficult to differentiate between new and old damage. Yeah. To your point, Matt, if there's, if there's no spatter, it's probably not new. And to your point before as well, I mean, you know, hail swaths and radar indicators are not perfect. Um, so you, you can always take liberties with, you know, a property that might be outside of a swath, but is near another swath. And again, you can, you can interview, you know, if it's a, if it's a commercial property where there's tenants, interview the tenants, you know, look at cars, look at power boxes, you know, look around and see if anyone else is, you know, having their property inspected. There's, there's indicators there always. And, and new damage presents different than old damage for sure. Everybody has cell phones these days. And when it hails, so many people are going outside and recording it because they want to show it off on Facebook. There's evidence in your area next door, that app, if you happen to be in an area, download the next door app for that area. Somebody recorded it. Somebody did. I'm glad this question was asked because I've heard I didn't you answer this question anything. before. Take it. This is a good question. What do you think about water damage claims with an unknown data loss? And let me add on to this, Taylor, and I'm going to let you answer. How do you feel about dates of discovery? Yeah, I think I think it goes back to the policy um, and and what happened. You know, there's vacancy provisions, so that's one thing to be considered. You know, were you there? Is it a tenant in there? And then the other, we have a we have a policy in Iowa right now where the the statute for legal action against us, the carrier, is two years from the date of discovery, so oh. the date you found out of it, which is a very good provision. I I've never you know seen that before. we found that's that in the policy is discovery. I've date. never seen that before. I believe the language is from the date you found out about the loss. 
But um, the thing with water losses is, you know, is it sudden or accidental? Is it sudden and accidental or has it been going on for a long time? There's a lot of coverage for seepage even, you know, and and if it's seepage, then it's been going over a period of 14 days or more. How do you know when it started? You'd have to be able to discover in that situation. Here's the fact pattern I use for this question. Uh, Taylor, his wife, go to the Keys for two weeks on vacation. They come back, they find, you know, three inches of water, God forbid, in in their house. Like, what's the data loss, right? Is it the day discovery at that point? What's the data loss? That's, that's, you know, that's a good little fact pattern for that question. Is it the date that the circuit breaker was installed improperly or the date that the fire started? Yeah. With that loss well, I'm, I'm about to find out. So, I'm about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> good question, though. It is a good question. So let's talk about it for a hail loss, though. There's no, there's, there might be storm data, but the storm data shows like five years ago. And you've got storm damage. You file a data discovery because it's the first time the insured found out that they had damage. Right now, there is case law in many states and a lot of cases that are about to have case law in many states for what is meant by prompt notice on hail and wind losses. Well, I can say Florida, there's a statute that's three years. You have three years to file a claim with a named storm or a windstorm uh, on a roof surface. I can tell you this, if you find out that you have hail damage half a decade later after the date of loss, you're fighting a huge uphill battle. You don't, I would suggest don't file that claim, but that's just my opinion. Take it with a grain of salt, but I would not file that claim. Would you guys ever file a date of discovery on a storm claim, storm damage? We would have to look at everything, but I... I don't like to be in the position to recommend that someone file a claim without knowing when it happened, unless they have a date when they know, or a window of time when they think it happened, um, and something to help support that date. What Again, would happen if you filed a claim with a window of time and say it was the month of August? I think the insurance company is going to try to narrow you down into an actual date, and I think they certainly would. Mm-hmm. Right, so. My company has filed on data discovery many times, many, many times, especially on wind damage, mostly because with wind damage, it's hard to determine when the damage was caused. It can be something that happens over many storms and becomes you know, easier to cause additional damage or not. Or it could be vandalism in the form of fake wind. And we don't know when the vandalism occurred because multiple roofers knocked on the door something along those lines. Sometimes... The policyholder truly does not know. And so when we filed the claim, we made sure that it was being recorded on our end and on theirs. And we specified, we do not know when this occurred. And they would always try to get us to give them a date of loss. And we would always fight them as hard as possible not to give them one. We always had to give them one in the end. But we made sure that it was very obvious if anybody listened to that recording that we don't know. This is pure speculation. and We have no idea and that we are being forced to give this date of loss. Um, and then we will say when we discovered it. And if they want to use that date as the date of loss, so be it. Even if we do that, they always end up having an engineer come out and the engineer looks at that specific date of loss, date of discovery, no matter how hard we fought on it, 
And they always say that there wasn't any storm during that date that could have caused a loss. But we've given such a large trail of evidence to say that we did not specify that as the cause or date of loss uh, that we've been able to work our way through that in most cases. Has the insurance company ever provided you with a data loss when you said, hey, it happened sometime in August and they said, oh, yeah, there was a uh, DOL August 13th? I mean, honestly, it has happened, but it's it's rare. Has that yeah. ever happened to you guys? I mean, in, in our experience, the, the instances where there's absolutely no weather data in the general vicinity of the property to support a date of loss is so rare. Um, yeah. Where you're, I mean, I'm speaking of an instance where you go out on site and you take a look at the property and there's clearly significant new damage from a covered peril, but there's or weather related peril. So wind or hail specifically, but there's no weather data in the area at all within 50 miles to support it. And mm. that just doesn't happen. There's usually something. I mean, what what happens more often is that, you know, an engineer or a carrier representative will rely on NOAA or CoreLogic and at that site, what CoreLogic says or what NOAA says is that there was no hail, even though two miles away, three miles away, there was, you know, recorded radar indicated two, two plus inch hail. And that's a much easier battle to fight. I think where you run into more issues is where, you know, you have damage, but there's, there's no, there's no recorded weather data in the immediate area, but there's a significant storm six years ago. That's a, that's a difficult, you know, hill to climb up. And if you don't have really good you know, collateral indicators and damage on site supporting recent hail damage or recent wind damage, it's going to be difficult to, to prove that. All right, so let's say that there is storm beta and, and it says it's 0.75 inch hail, but the roof is actually damaged. Maybe it's cosmetic damage, but it's damaged. But all of the engineers are then going to say, we might freeze in a second the internet. Simply just showed up. That's never a good sign. Come back, Internet. I'm just going to mumble for a second and hope it comes back. It's back. All right, so 0.75 inch hail, the engineer is going to say that that is not large enough to cause damage, and that's what is on the storm data. Now, we could argue that, you know, the hail could have been larger than that based on stuff on site. Um, or we could argue that the roof that we're looking at it's much older than the roofs that they use to make those determinations. Yeah, that those assertions that are made that these these blanket statements that are, you know, it takes one and a half inch hail to damage, you know, a single ply membrane, for example, or something like that. Those are those don't take into consideration any of the variables that happen within a storm or on site. <clears throat> you know, the age of the roof, the condition of it. And then as well as the spectrum of the size of hail. Yeah, the majority of the hail might have been 0.75 inch with, you know, a couple one and a half inch, two inch stones sprinkled in there for a very short period of time. Um, and to go back to Matt Barron's comment that he made, I mean, on-site collateral indicators trump any sort of empirical data or, you know, white papers or studies that were ever done. And it should be the job of a carrier representative to take that into consideration, albeit they, they don't because the, you know, the arsenal of data they have at their disposal refutes that and it works in their their favor. But, you know, if you have, you know, three inch spatter and, you know, major dents and all this other stuff, like, you know, you got cars with windows busted out and hail traces saying 0.75 inch hail, it's pretty freaking evident that it was not 0.75 inch hail that hit in this area. 
Well, I mean, we're not talking about Texas hail in most of these scenarios, but if you've got 0.75 inch hail and it actually did come down as 0.75 inch hail, but you've got a 20 year old roof, three tab, it might still actually cause damage. But what's the wind speed? You know, yeah. I mean, like like you said, Taylor, there's a lot of other variables that come into play other than a blanket. 0.75 inch hail cannot cause damage to this roof system. I, I agree well, with you. Yeah, Taylor. and let's take it at face value. Say it was 0.75 inch hail, and it, that's all it was. But it was high frequency, and it was very dense. It was ice falls versus slush falls, and it happened over the course of an hour instead of five minutes. Like all of these, all of these Spirit things brain. get overlooked in lieu of what yeah. Hag did in a lab shooting ice balls out of a tube. So, so if if you want a big nugget, audience. If Hague tries to say that crap, they're going to put at the end of their uh, report um, a reference to that uh, Scott Morrison article. Um, the Scott Morrison article from 2005 specifies that they did roofs up to 10 years old. Just 10. So point that out. All right, let's get the next one. Many contractors only submit for the material costs on permits. That presents a problem when the insurer is claiming their repair estimate is inflated from a claim two years later. Permit might only be 35% of the total price actually charged by the prior contractor. Agreed. I've had to argue that many times. Agreed. Does that really hold that much weight? What, that Did they, they, inflation I mean, in price? Obviously, there's going to be a difference between one repairer versus another. Yeah. It's not going to be the exact same work. It seems like a ridiculous argument. From Well, how about this? Have you ever seen an insurance policy that has a 20% uh, RCV guard or face value uh, of the policy for um, inflation? Because yeah. I see it all the time. I mean, so it's not a ridiculous. I mean, they're... They're actually making coverage for uh, that exact comment. That's a good point. Yeah. Just makes it seem like even stupider of an argument. <laughs> <for them. laughs> All right. We should probably do one more question and call it quits. I love C3 Group Claims and Construction Consulting. Uh, we love you, Conrad Phillips. Yeah. I met Conrad <laughs> down at National Claims Institute. He's a good guy. Good guy. Yeah. He came down to our, uh, to our course. Conrad. A really good dude. I think that's awesome. no, no, there was one more. All right, last question. What are your thoughts on golf ball impact claims, generally tile roof, where it is hard to pin down date of loss? What about looking at prior tournament schedule on course to pinpoint date of loss? Oh, interesting. Oh, man. That's, I, that's, that's out there. Let me put some context to this. We've won a case with this exact scenario. Literally won a won a roof on this exact scenario. So you found like a tournament that was rescheduled because of weather, and used that as is that what, is no, that what you no said? what we no. what what we did was is look at the tournament schedule oh, on that golf, golf course. Yeah, to see the majority and of people that were going to be. It's there. the same general harmful conditions over a period of time, so it doesn't have to be each individual golf ball. That's really mm -hmm. cool. You know, there's weather data and then there's golf tournament data. You know, like whichever, whichever one. That's a cool idea. We really did that. That that's pretty crazy. I forgot about that, Dale. Thanks for pointing it out. I have a claim with a bunch of golf balls that we found on it. I'm going to have to talk to you about it. Yeah, that's interesting. There you go. And what you, how many people have seen, uh, you, you inspect roofs, you're going to find bullets in roofs. We've yeah. done that a couple of oh, times. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've got bullet claims. Yeah. Uh, Taylor, have you ever had one of those before? 
You know, I haven't, but I actually just uh, just was fortunate enough to have a long conversation with Ryan about that specific claim that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're going to win that one. That is interesting. We're going to win that one. <laughs> I've won others for bulls. It's a, it's, it's a repairability argument more than anything. All right. Any final statements, Taylor? Not that I can think of. Thanks so much, you guys, for having me on. It's good to see both of your, your smiling faces and enjoy a beer with you and chat. Yeah. So thanks for having me. We liked you, too. Absolutely, man. <laughs> I, I appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you're busy as hell, and uh, I do appreciate it, man. Yeah, I mean, you guys are going on tour with, with so many other podcasts. It was only fair that I got you on mine at some point. Right, right on. Yeah. No, this is the best one, you know. It's got our logo and the title and everything. So kind of does. Duck down, uh, Remington. I like Taylor's yeah. style. Look at that. Duck. There it Boom. is. There it is. We have a few more we need to put on there, though. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Taylor. I'm going to pull you off. If you want to stick in the wings, we can talk after. That was awesome. Um, that was a discussion that I've been wanting to have for a while. There's a lot of things in there, especially about the data discovery issue. I get that question so many times from contractors all the time. All the time. All the time. And so, we got in the weeds a little bit, which I know you love. That's the way to go. Absolutely. These are fun. Taylor, he, he knows his stuff. Uh, I've heard him speak live before. Um, great guy. Like I said, knows his stuff. And, man, that, I had fun today. That was a good time. Yeah. Yep. We have a quick announcement to make for National Claims Institute, if you guys will allow us to use this format for that. The next class that we had scheduled, we're actually going to push back to November. I'm going to contact those that have already purchased tickets and uh, come to some kind of an agreement with them, some concessions. Um, the building that we were purchasing keeps getting pushed back on the um, on us being able to get into it. The building department that is currently inside of it is building their own building and material shortages and delays have caused them to not be able to move to their new building in time. And it keeps pushing us back. And for this course, I need a lot of displays. We don't have room for them in the other building that we have. So unfortunately we're going to have to move our specialty roof course back. Uh, we do still have the shingle roof course coming up the third week of September, September 20th through 24th. I'm not going to say the date, but you can go to nationalclaims.institute, click on the available courses button and see what is available. And the flat roof training, where we talk about low slope uh, damages, how to discover them, what to look for. The flat roof commercial roof inspection training that I know most of you guys are really interested in. That is still happening in October. We fully anticipate definitely being in the building in time for that one. So, that one's still happening. Um, and if you have purchased the specialty roof tickets already and want to just push it over to the flat roof, we'll be up okay that. Absolutely. Not a big deal. We're just trying to get in this building, you know? I'm ready for the flat roof, man. That's going to be awesome. The commercial so many people going to be awesome. It's going to be worth the bang for the buck. Absolutely. 100%. So anyway, next week um, we had scheduled someone to talk about specialty roofing as a result of that specialty roof class, but I'm actually going to try to reschedule that. Uh, to be a little bit more in line with when we actually do that course. So I might have Andrew Barron's on to talk about uh, flat roofs. I'm hoping he's got the ability. But next week, Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Don't miss this. You want to be able to ask us questions live. 
you want to have your comment show up on the screen because if you do, we're going to answer it live. And that's hard to get a hold of people like us. Boy, that sounded arrogant. Bring it on. Anyway. Bring it on. All right. Let's do it. See you guys later. Thanks, guys. We'll see you on the next one.